This morning we'll be turning to the epistle of James, or the general epistle of James, or the book of James, however you want to call it. We'll probably call it book of James after this. But we do see here, uh, as we began a series upon this epistle, and as we have seen James in dealing with the overarching theme of true religion, that's his main subject, and then we said that the remainder then of the book deals with the fact of what does it mean then to live out that true religion. And this we all gave in the introduction, as you remember. And James here, after he has his uh, introduction there in verse 1, his salutation, he begins immediately to speak upon the fact uh, that believers face temptation. And this will be the message this morning that we'll be looking at. So let's read verses 1 down through verse 4. Now, I realize this is not all of the context, but this is as far as we're going to get today. So, chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 4. The text is actually 2 through 4. Chapter 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. As we said that this theme of this book, or the major theme, is, of course, true religion. And we can say here, then, true religion is going to be tested. True religion is going to be tried. True religion will face temptations. And in that, though, is the working out, as it were, our salvation. The purpose of temptations, the purpose of trying our faith, is to work, as we see in verse 3, patience. And then in verse 4, that moves us on then into maturity in the things of the Lord. So there is a purpose in all of this that you and I go through. So we want to deal with these three verses this morning. The first thing I would like us to see, of course, is temptations. Notice there in verse 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptation. In fact, verses 2 and 3, in reality, speak of this very thing. He uses the word temptation there in verse 2. In verse 3, he talks about the trying of our faith or the trying of your faith. So evidently, the readers of this epistle, the readers who take this letter from James... They were acquainted then with temptation. In fact, they experienced, apparently, in verse 2, as it's called here, divers' temptation. Now, temptations can come in all sorts of varieties, can't they? And that's what these fellows or these brethren here faced. We come into temptations of all kinds, all shapes, so to speak, and all colors. And that's kind of the idea that's behind the word divers there. When he says divers, he means the fact it's all kind, it's all shapes, it's all colors, all manners, and all types, and so forth. Paul uses the term, for instance, uh, just up in the text in Hebrews 13, chapter 9. He says, be not carried away with divers and strange doctrines, different kinds, different shapes of doctrines that may come around. Hebrews 1, and Paul uses that term again. In regards to our Lord, uh, His revelation to us in 
uh, Hebrews 1, verse 1, God, who at sundry times, and in, notice here, divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. In other words, he's showing us here that in times past, God spoke in different kinds and different ways to men, different means in doing so. And this is what uh, James is getting across here. There are just different kinds, many kinds, diver kinds of problems. Uh, Peter uses the same word, at least in the Greek, in 1 Peter 1. Uh, one book over, the other direction. In verse 6, Wherefore ye re- greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through, and the word there, manifold or divers temptation. I'm not correcting the Bible here. I'm just telling you that's what the Greek word for manifold is. It's the same thing. Manifold or divers temptation. So we got an idea here. We see that temptations come in different shapes, different sizes, different colors, different kinds, different ways. And who hasn't experienced here such temptations? They did. It was common to them. That's why James here is writing them. He's trying to be an encouragement to them. He's trying to show them that they ought to count it a joy. He's trying to show them that they know these things and that it produces patience. And and this is all part of maturing. So he's acquainting them with something that they already know. Just as I am here this morning with you. Who here hasn't faced some kind of temptation? Who here hasn't gone through uh, various manifold, different kinds of temptations? But it may be asked, well, but what is a temptation? What is a temptation? What constitutes a temptation? Well, actually, the word itself is kind of hard to nail down. I've got seven pages worth of notes on the idea from lexicons about the idea of what the word temptation means. And it comes down to, well, again, it's diverse temptation, so it can have different ways in looking at it. But it comes down to this. First of all, and I'm going to try to keep to the context of what we'll be describing. We're not down in verse 12, 13, and 14, and 15 yet, so let's don't get it confused with this. Let's just stay in this immediate context, and when we get to this part, that's when we'll describe that. But right now we're dealing with this issue here in this context. Well, let's say, first of all, and we're talking about what constitutes a temptation, we can see immediately that a temptation is something that comes in a variety. As we noted above, notice, uh, you fall into divers temptation. So one of the things that can constitute a temptation is that it, it is different in different things, in different ways. It's not just one thing which may come upon us and be a temptation. It can be many different things in different ways. Also, the word temptation, though I don't think that's the way it's used necessarily here, it can also mean like an enticement. An enticement. I'd say it it would have some aspect of that in this meaning here. But I don't think it's James' primary thing that he's saying. Like, for instance, and we've all heard my... Issue or or not problem, I shouldn't say that. My example of standing out in front of the Nissan car dealership and me standing there and seeing those nice new Nissan pickups and then I just lust out. That would be an enticement to me. Nothing wrong with those Nissan pickups sitting out there on the lot. The problem is in here, isn't it? Me lusting after them. 
That's what I'm talking about. Or Honda, as someone here called me the other day. Just as well, I like those two. I saw one the other day. But that's not that. You see, it's an enticement. It can be used in that sense, the word temptation. You remember our Lord was tempted by Satan. He was trying to be enticed to worship him or to fall down from the temple or to make these uh, stones into bread. In our present time text, though, I think it has something more to do with anything that could or would cause sorrow, difficulty, troubles, and so forth, both including distress, as obviously, as they were scattered abroad, both within and without. And thus, then, it becomes a trial to us. I think that's the main thrust at this point, as he is using the word temptation here. Because, again, I know it can be used in different ways. But here I do believe it's in the sense of having the idea of troubles and trials, tribulation and afflictions coming upon us. Even the Lord Jesus himself used it that way. He told his disciples, you have been with me through my temptations. He didn't mean there on the backside of the desert there with the devil, but he meant the troubles that he has faced with the Jews of that day for, and the Pharisees and how that they were, they became partakers as well with the trials and the adversities of our Lord. And James says here, when you fall into these things, what are you to do? Well, he tells us. But these things were gone. Now, what were some of the things that they had? Well, immediately they were scattered abroad. And most uh, contend here, again, this was a dispersion. And thus, not only in the sense that they were just everywhere, but they were there because of a purpose, because of trial, because of adversity, because of physically having... Remember in Rome, the Jews had to leave. They were told to go. So there were some hardships in that. James chapter 2, for instance, in verse 6, we see some other kinds of temptation going, troubles coming upon them. And that, he says, from the rich. Notice verse 6 and 7. But ye have, desp- but ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they not, bla- or do not they blaspheme that worthy name which ye are called, by the which ye are called? See, that was, a tr- that was a temptation to them. That was a trouble to them. Chapter 5. Give some examples of it even. He says, Take my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name. Verse 10. Sorry about that. James 5, verse 10. Take my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. And the reason why I say this is related because that's what trying of our faith brings, isn't it? Patience. What temptations come by, come for. So, sufferings and afflictions and of patience. Behold, we count them happy. Here again, count it all joy. We count them happy, which endure. You have heard of the, and heard of the uh, patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercies. So here were a folk then, a people who had these temptations of troubles and trials. Paul the Apostle himself tells us in Acts, Chapter 20 and verse 19, that he too was acquainted with such. He says in verse 19, he says, serving the Lord. He's speaking to the elders that came from, to meet him at Melita. Serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying and weight of the Jews. They were after him. He had suffered hardships from them. 
Whole churches even suffered. Uh, they're not called a temptation, but again, if we use that term in its broad sense, it would certainly fit. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4. So that we ourselves glory in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. Again, these early churches weren't like we are today where everybody kind of leaves us alone. You're free to go do what you want. These men and women of those churches of that day were hounded. They were persecuted. They had afflictions. They had sorrows, both from the Roman government and even from the Jews themselves who thought it was their business to stick their noses into the churches of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so they became a thorn, as it were, in their side. Hebrews reminds us of men and women who suffered greatly. Hebrews 11, verse 37, he says, They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted. There's the word. Were tempted, were slain with a sore. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. In fact, everybody, all Christians face some kind of temptation, whether it be great or whether it be small. You remember in Acts 14, Paul told the brethren, or they went through and reaffirmed to the brethren that through much tribulation you will enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus Himself warned His own disciples of the fact that they too will face problems. John 16, verse 33 he says, These things I have spoken unto you, that, ye in, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now here he plainly says, you will have tribulation. And that tribulation will become then their temptation. In fact, as I said, everybody goes through them. You say, how can you say that? Well, I say so because of 1 Corinthians 10. And verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. who will not have suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. But with, with the temptation, also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. So temptations are common, brethren. James wasn't far off in his application here to the reader's because he knew as well that temptations are common to man. Well, now that we know that we have them, and they come in different sizes, different colors, and different shapes, there's divers of them, manifold temptations. What do we do when they come? Now, we know they're coming. So there's no doubt about that. In the world, you will have tribulation. You're going to be tempted. So what do we do? So, what's James' advice here? Well, he tells us here in verse 2, count it all joy. Look at verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. So, lesson number one. What do we do when temptations come upon us? Well, the thing, one, I, let me put it this way. One of the things we're to do, he's not saying this is all you do. I hope you understand that. And we're going to show that in a moment, I hope. But one of the things he tells us we can do is to 
And our to-do is to count it all joy. You say, well, not too many folks are joyful when they come, when things come upon them that can bring grief and personal sorrow. And that's true. That's absolutely true. Not too many people can be joyous in that matter. And when trials come, they do bring sorrows and grief. In fact, they wouldn't be much of a trial, wouldn't be much of a temptation, and they wouldn't be much of an affliction if they did not bring sorrow, trouble, and affliction. Now, James here is not ruling out here that the, there aren't sorrows. And he's also not ruling out here that we're even to grieve in the midst of... He's going to tell some brethren here in a little while, don't be joyous. He's not contradicting himself, nor is he contradicting Paul. So James is not ruling out in these passages that there aren't sorrows and that it's okay even to grieve. Because that would contradict so many other places of Scripture. Even our Lord... Doesn't the Bible tell us Jesus wept? Doesn't John chapter 11 verses, I won't take the time to read it, 33 through 38, tell us very plainly that he groaned within his spirit? Did he not tell his own disciples, I'm exceeding sorrowful even unto death? Did Jesus sin? We don't believe so, do we? The Bible tells us he was above that. So was he contradicting James or was James correcting the Lord here? Well, of course not. Also, who can't read the Psalms and not see the reality as well as the lawfulness of having grief in the midst of our sorrows? Turn over to Rome. We're going to see this tonight and Lord willing in the future more. But... Look in Romans 8. Now, you know we're going to be, pre Lord willing, we'll be preaching that tonight. But what wonderful, great, encouraging words that the Apostle gives us from verses 35 down through 39. He's just really telling us that all things do work together for good, doesn't he? And that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of Christ it won't be tribulation, it won't be distress, it won't be persecution, it won't be famine, it won't be nakedness, it won't be peril or sword. Not even death, not even the angels, not anything in heaven or hell, he says, can separate us from the love of God. That's joyous good news. Make us happy, wouldn't it? Read the next few verses. Look at them. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. Right after verse 39. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. That I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. I suppose if you're a rank infidel here this morning, and say, well, that's just all contradictory. I've already told you the Bible isn't true. See there, you've just proved it to us. No, I did not. You're missing the point. The point is, James is not ruling out there aren't sorrows and afflictions and trials in those things. Well, then, what is he saying then, Pastor? Well, first of all, he's saying this. It is possible to have joy in the midst of temptation. 
He's making it a reality here. Listen up, folks. Brethren, look, you who are going in through diverse temptation, who have fallen into these things, been overtaken by them, know this. You can count it a joy. You can have joy in the midst of your temptations. We know he's saying that because that's what he tells us to do. And then... He's also stating here, at least by implication, that there can be sorrow and yet joy in the same trial. It's just a matter of which angle of the things we're viewing. Just like when Paul says in chapter, or excuse me, James says in chapter 2 that we're justified by faith. And Paul says, no, we're justified by, excuse me, excuse me, I said that. We're justified by faith and works. Paul says, no, we're justified by faith alone. Are they contradictory? No. It's two different things, aren't they? This is what James is talking about here. There is a sense, there is a reality that when trials come, when tribulations come, they cause grief, they cause sorrow lawfully. And it wouldn't be wrong to grieve. Blessed are they that mourn, he says, in the Beatitudes. So there's that aspect of it as we view it. But if we turn it this way and look at it another angle, we can say, look though, in the midst of my sorrow, in the midst of my mourning, there is still joy to be had. Similar thing in Psalm 2. These don't seem to go together, but they do. Here the psalmist exhorts us, serve the Lord with fear in verse 11. Rejoice with trembling. Contradictory? Absolutely not. We can rejoice with trembling. Again, the beatitude, blessed are they who mourn. Well, then, I guess we need to explain what this joy is. And that's so we don't mistake this. So when he tells us here to count it all joy, what does he mean? Well, first of all, he says all joy. In other words, this is to be an abundant thing. Above all things, you can be joyous. And you should be joyous. So that's what the word all joy has to do with. But what is this joy? Well, I think biblically speaking, it is the peace of mind. It is the contentment. The cheerfulness that God gives His people in the midst of their trials. Have you ever gone through it? And you have. And in one sense you think, boy, this is really terrible. But then you look at another way and think, but you know, I see God working. I haven't died yet. I'm still persevering. I'm going through. And there is a contentment there. That, yes, in one part of your stomach it's in knots. And then in the other part of your stomach it seems to be doing okay. We can have those at the same time. I've experienced it. Even at this day. But more importantly, it is a joy that is grounded in the knowledge of God's working things out for our good. Remember that passage in Romans 8, verse 28? You see, James isn't contradicting Paul, is he, at all? They complement one another, don't they? 
So get this under your belt. True, biblical, God-wrought joy is this idea of a peace of mind and contentment that is grounded in the knowledge of God's working things out to our good. Because he's going to say, knowing this, in verse 3, that the trying of your faith work in patience. That's why you can rejoice. Because you know, he says, this isn't just theory. You know this. In fact, if you've already been through temptations, you know that this is a reality. Knowing this, according to the Word of God, according even to our own experience within the context of the Bible, that this is so. And another thing we can say about all of this is verse 3. Notice, it's the trying of our faith. That these temptations, in and of themselves, is a trying of our faith faith. And then I thought, well, what does that word try mean? And then I, once again, got four pages worth of lexicon information about the idea of the word trying there. Simply put, it means to test. You can, I could have made all that in one page, but they put it on several. But the idea here means to test. And in this, I think we see a little bit more about the nature of temptations. Something about the characteristic or the nature of a temptation is that they test us. They try us. Hebrews 11. Back up again in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac... And that he had received the promises, offered up his only begotten son. He was tested. He was tried. How? By taking that son that he was his well-beloved, his only son in the sense in which God gave the revelation in regards to the seed of Christ who was to come, and says, now go, take him, and offer him up. Make him a sacrifice. That tested Abraham's faith, did it not? So that's what they are. They are a test of our faith. A trial reveals something of our faith, for that matter. First Peter 1, verse 7. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory, at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So, trials, or excuse me, temptations, which are, can be trials, are the trying of our faith. You want to know what your faith is like? Well, when you go through the trial, you'll find out. You'll find out what you're made of, so to speak. You'll find out the, the reality, even at times, of your own faith. Look in Matthew 13, verse 21. The Lord giving us that parable. He speaks about a seed that fell, and he says, Yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while. 
For when tribulation or persecution, which are those temptations, ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. You see, they can tell you then what your faith is like. And this is why, brethren, over and over again you have heard from this pulpit, and I tell people privately as well as publicly, our trials, our temptations, our afflictions are not times of excuses. Well, I don't have to be as faithful because I'm going through a trial. Or I can sin in this matter and it won't matter because I'm in a trial. Though you may not say it that way. Uh, that's what our lives say. All you're doing when you either say that or you live that way, it tells you something of the reality or perhaps the lack of reality of your faith. Do trials drive you from obedience? You better check your faith to see if it's real. Because that's the kind of folks that hear the Word. And when trials and adversities come, they're offended and they go their way. So there is a testing reality to these things. And that's what he tells us. Knowing this. I shouldn't have to explain this to you, brethren. You should know this already. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith, it's a trial. But notice, secondly, something else here. It works patience. Okay, another word we probably have to explain. What's patience? And that and I didn't look up. Uh, but patience, as one said, is something that we're not born with a supply of. And how true that is, isn't it? By nature, because it is spiritual fruit, by nature, we're just not a very patient people. And I know sometimes the word patience for most, for some means I did get mad. I kept my cool. Well, that's not what the word patience means in 1611 English. Patience has the idea of long suffering. Uh, we would say putting up with it. The Bible calls it enduring. Continuing on. You see, trials, which are the trying of our faith, works endurance. It works long-suffering. It works, as we see in verse 4, maturity. Not acting like a baby. If you're going through trials and in the end of it you act like a child, you might want to test your faith again. You might want to examine it again. Again, does this rule out grieving? Does this rule out sorrow? No, we've already showed that's a part and parcel of the trial. So we're not talking about that. What it comes down to is this. Will I do it or will I not do it? Will I be faithful or will I not be faithful? Am I going to be obedient to God's Word? Will I endure? See, because the trying of your faith works patience. The reason why I keep switching temptation and 
tribulation around is because I think Paul does. Romans 5, verse 3. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Same thing, isn't it? Patience. And brethren, as Robertson said, that's something we're just not born with a supply of. And so God molds and matures His people through such means as this. This is not the only means He matures us. But it is a means. In fact, notice verse 4. It brings us on to maturity. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. The idea there is is maturity, completeness. This is a quote. I think it's mine, though. A people, that is believers, who can bear up cheerfully under trials and adversities are a mature people. When the going gets tough, what does the Bible say? Or what's the, the adage? The tough get going, don't they? But the apostate, when the going gets tough, they depart. But the Christian, by the very nature of who and what he is, by the grace of Almighty God, matures in these things. And so the purpose of trials is to try our faith, which works patience, which works us towards maturity. Thus, then, don't kick against them. And that's what he means by there. But let patience have her perfect work. Don't kick against these things. Don't kick against God's method of maturing His people. Well, let's close now with some things to say about this. I know I've given enough application, but we're going to go another round of it. First of all, Christian, are you in the midst of temptations? Are you personally in the midst of temptations? Well, first of all, let me give you some heads up here, just as James does. Let me give you some heads up, as we'll call these. First of all, the first heads up is don't be surprised that they've come upon you. Sometimes we were almost like, it caught me off guard. Oh, I can go through trials. I thought I was doing fine. Boom, suddenly, this is dumped in my lap. Don't be surprised that that happens. Secondly, know assuredly, this is part of our being in saving union with Christ. His sufferings. Remember, we've looked in Romans 8. If we're going to reign with Christ, then we're going to have to suffer with Him. And it's true. Every believer will reign with Him. Thus, it's true. Every believer then will go through some sort of testing and suffering. Another reason why we shouldn't be surprised if we read our Bibles. Thirdly, know that it is for our good. That God is working things in us. And then fourthly, do what James says. Count it a joy. Reckon it 
to be so. That's what the word account there means. Count, excuse me. It's the idea of like reckoning it. Uh, we would use the word if we were talking about imputation or uh, justification. Imputation. You have to count it so. Despite what your physical eyes may see and your ears may hear, you have to be convinced this is right. And you must count it a joy. Peter sums it up, those four things, this way. Chapter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of God and of, excuse me, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. And then notice the next verse. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. You see, you got a trial. Don't count it. Don't let it surprise you. Know that it's part of God's our being in union with Christ. Know that it's for our good. Count it joy, and do what you ought to be doing. Don't do wrong in the trial. Oh, but I have excuse. I mean, I'm going through a trial. Peter doesn't give him that excuse, does he? You don't be found like this, he says. Easier said than done. I recognize all of this this morning. It's easy to preach this stuff. But go out those doors and live it. I recognize as a whole different matter. I'm with you on that one. I do recognize that. But brethren, again, that's part of the trial. If it was easy, it wouldn't be a trial, would it? If you knew the answers to the test, it wouldn't be a test. And that's the idea, Christian. Secondly, we can even learn from others who have experienced trials. Let's go to James again, chapter 5. That's what Job was about. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, verse 11, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. I think especially of the saints in Scripture how they are good examples to us in regards to these things. Look in Romans 15. This is exactly what he's talking about there. Romans 15. You know, we wonder, why is... You know, look at all that. You know, you, you ever done a comparison of how much Old Testament you got versus the New Testament? That's a lot to throw out, by the way, if you don't like the Old Testament. You might as well just get Jehudi's penknife and just be honest about it. Start cutting it out. But notice what Paul says. For what sort of things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus and so forth. So we can learn from others. 
not just others from the scriptures, but brethren who have went through trials. You know, if we've gone through temptations, one of the things Second Corinthians tells us is that we should be able to comfort others who need comfort and so forth. There again, the absolute need of church fellowship, church membership, all those things that you know better about. And not just saying, well, I'm on the rolls, that's it. No, it has to be this working these things out among us together, these things. And then thirdly, and here I want us to... I mean, we do recognize all this is of the Lord, I trust, don't we? I mean, God works in us both the will and the do of His good pleasure. He works, okay. But there's also an aspect, though, that we do these things. We're not passive in this. You know, he says there in James, again, uh, but let patience have her... Per- You're to do that. You are to count it a joy. You are to know this in verse 3. These are things we are doing... As these are going on, we're not just sitting there, Oh, Lord, bless me. Lord, pour that grace down my throat. I'll just sit here like a funnel and you just pour it through me and it'll just flow. It doesn't work that way. That's what I was taught, but that's not what the Bible says. We do the responsibilities that we have. Notice it says here that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Where they go, okay, it's just going to come. Notice Romans 12 and verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Patient in, no, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. So, we are very active in this. Fourthly, well, obviously none of this is done without faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is not, you know, we would say all this without Christ. It would just be pure moralism. You could go read a billboard in Topeka and get that kind of stuff. We're not talking like that. We're talking about spiritual works of God working in us through the, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ as we continue to believe and hold upon Him and looking to Him. We mentioned a while ago looking to the, to the saints of Scripture and how that they are a, a great help to us and persevering and enduring, patient. So is, a, so is our Savior. Hebrews 12, and we've preached this before. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. How do we do that? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, patient, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. You won't have patience if you're not looking and considering Christ. This is why we spent months and months going through Mark and going through, no, excuse me, Matthew and Luke. We were showing you Christ. Why? Because He's the prime one to look to in the midst of trials and adversities. Say that what everybody did in the Bible? Yes. If they were saints, that's what they did. David. 
in particular. And then fifthly, as we'll see a little bit of this tonight, so I won't take the time now to expound it, but just a, just a sentence. A view of the love of God towards us is certainly helpful in a justified state. That's Romans 8, verses 28 down through 39. And then lastly, sinner, if you repent and believe not, all the sorrows and the afflictions that are common to man, which means which you get, which I get. But all these, tri- tri- all these temptations and these tribulations and these afflictions and these sorrows that you face will be but the beginning of sorrows. When hell opens its mouth and receives you. And that's what will happen if you repent not. And believe not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The way and manner in which God justifies His people. And declares them not guilty. Saved by the grace of Almighty God. You see, yes, you go through trials like I do. Yet, maybe not the same kind, or maybe not even the same measure, or perhaps even worse. That part doesn't matter. The point is, that's the beginning of your sorrows. Just the beginning. Hell is forever. And there's no second chances. And it'll never end. And uh, I just can't imagine having the wrath of Almighty God poured out upon someone for all eternity. We see Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed like that. But can you imagine that continually, continually, continually upon the person of someone for all eternity? No relief. No hope. No way out. Terrible. Terrible. May God give you grace to repent before it's too late.